0: Welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David
1: Hanscom. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and returning to the show this week is Dr. Bernie Siegel, best selling author of Love, Medicine, and Miracles, and world renowned surgeon. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. Bernie, welcome back to our show. We had a podcast last week where we discussed about the nature of healing, about circumstances versus stress. And my focus on this podcast is something that you have brought to the world years ago, which I hope to bring more into public awareness. And that's the use of the patient's story and art, both as a diagnostic and a healing tool. And Bernie has written a book called Love, Medicine, Miracles. The book that we're going to talk about this episode is called The Art of Healing, and I read it a few years ago. Unfortunately, I can't find the book today, but it's a fascinating book of story after story of people's art and what it tells them about their life, but also about their diagnosis. It's really fascinating. So, Bernie, welcome back. I'm excited hey. to have you on the show. And I enjoyed our last podcast. And I want to jump right into this whole concept of the... We talked about how the doctors these days only really talk to the patients. They don't really know them very well. So we don't really know their coping skills. We know even less about their circumstances that might be creating these symptoms. But when your circumstances overwhelm your coping skills, you develop illness, you get set. So what Bernie has done with his book about the art of healing is helped us understand the input, what's going on in a person's life that the body's respond to that's creating symptoms. And I will tell you after doing, you know, spine surgery for 32 years, people suffer. They suffer badly. And they may have had this bone spur for many many years but guess what something really bad happened in their lives it caused some major suffering and what i eventually learned that if i could just write it out with them be with them allow the suffering to pass they didn't need surgery they got better pain disappeared often so bernie um welcome back and just segueing into this whole prospect about the patient's story and the creation and resolution of disease Um, I know you have many stories. I was wondering if you had a story to start start out this episode with.
0: Well, I mean, (laughs) I'm laughing because, you know, I brought music into the operating room. Okay. We talked about what kind of pictures hung on your wall in your hospital room. I mean, all these studies that show it makes a difference in how the patients do. And yet everybody, especially the tape recorder, was, um, you're an explosion hazard. We have anesthetic acids that are explosive. You can't bring that thing in here. You're risking our lives. You know, what if there's a spark? But after two weeks, everybody was bringing their own, what was called the boom box back in those days, into the operating room because it felt so much better. We'll risk the explosion. (laughs) You know? And I always found nobody's against success. They're against listening to a lecture because there were times talking at grand rounds at Yale. There's a poem um, about cancer. It's called Miss G. The doctor says to his wife after he examines this woman in his office, cancer's a funny thing, childless women get it, men when they retire, it's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. A doctor in the audience yells at me, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. I thought, you know, why don't you look at life? Then you'll know it's true. Why would the poet write it if it isn't true? And that's why I often tell people, read fiction if you want to know the truth, because the authors are observing life and writing about it. Yeah. And so when I drew a picture that I mentioned in the last, uh, you know, conversation we had, um, and Elizabeth Cooper Ross was asking me questions about my life, that made no sense to me. But then she pointed out all these things in the picture. You know, the meaning of colors, numbers. Because even Jung, again, years ago, numbers have quantity and meaning. But art therapists don't know that, see? Um, One of the funniest ones in the hospital was, this boy was coming in for a circumcision. And all the parents knew I wanted the kids to draw pictures so I'd know you know, what was in their minds, how they were going to respond, because you'd be surprised, depressed kids, you know, feeling my parents are bringing me to be cut up. The whole picture is in black. And I could show that to the parents, you see, and say, this is what your child is feeling. But this kid drew two airplanes, two fighter planes in profile. And he handed them to me when he came in and said, this is like before, this is like after. Now, what do you think they look like? They looked like an uncircumcised penis and a circumcised penis. And the whole operating room was laughing because here's this kid. He, he didn't say, look, I drew my penis. Th- these are two airplanes, but they are exactly like a penis. <laughs> oh. And you see, that's what changed people. You know, then they began to enjoy these things. And then they'd come to me when they need help and say, what picture should I draw that would give me? a clue, you know? And it could be, I remember one doctor friend, I, he said, I don't know who to marry. I said, draw yourself with all the women. And we picked up the right one for him, you know, from the pictures. And when you get into things like chemotherapy and surgery, one woman drew the devil giving her poison as chemotherapy. Okay? Another draws a black box as the operating room and she's lying there all alone. I said, don't go well, I need this, I want to, then change your attitude. I want you to go home, picture yourself having the treatment, going to the hospital, everything going beautifully, and you're waking up feeling fine and going right home. And a week later, they would draw this beautiful picture and how different their results were in terms of lack of side effects and pain and everything else, because now this was something they were choosing and their mind was prepared for. See, even on the way to the hospital, I mean, these are all studies. Um, your white count is going down while you're driving to the hospital to get chemotherapy. You know? Okay. One, one doctor did the study. Another was giving four drugs with the letters E, P, O, and H. One of the oncologists noticed hey, you turn it around, it spells hope. So he gave the hope protocol instead of EPO. More okay. of his patients did well than the others. And that's the part doctors aren't taught, you know, when they're learning how to be doctors.
1: Well, just to be clear, the data is right there. We talked about it in the last podcast that a sense of optimism and hope directly stimulates the immune system in a All very right. positive way. It's just a flat out direct effect. It's not a psychological issue. All it's right. a physiological effect of the immune system actually responding to hope. So hope and optimism have a dramatic effect on your whole body's
0: actual... Well, hope, shift. love, and faith. Right. It's so Not even just from the doctor. Study of Harvard students. Did your parents love you? Yes. Did your parents love you? No. Those who said no, 98% had suffered a major illness by middle age. Right. They were all looked up, you know, 35 years later. And 24% of those who said I was loved. And so... When you think of that, you, you, you see, how can you deny the effects of all these things?
1: Yeah. You know, I just happened to look up the Harvard City a couple of years ago. It's now a 50-year follow-up in that group of, um, I guess, college students at the time. And again, if they are happy, nurtured, and safe, um, just about half the instance of heart disease, cancer, depression, divorce, is unbelievably different long-term. Also, out of England, there's a 50-year follow-up starting kids who were bullied in school, and they found out, first of all, 40% of kids were bullied, which is really high. Yeah. Second of all, the, again, same thing. Uh, over, over a 50-year span, the lifespan was about 10 years shorter, a multitude of serious diseases. And again, when you're always on defense and always feeling threatened and always on alert, it just wears your body down. So I, I'll never forget, though, Bernie and I um, did a workshop at the Omega Institute about five years ago. And Bernie was on Skype. We couldn't make it up to the workshop. And what happened, we had about, oh, 20 participants. And what they did, they drew pictures of themselves and they could be symbolic like trees and flowers and or actual portraits, et cetera. We held, held them up to the Skype screen and I was cynical. I wasn't particularly a believer of any sort. I just thought, well, this is interesting. And what happened of uh, participant after participant, Bernie just kept, kept on saying things like, well, what about this number? What about this number? What does this represent? Every time there's a significant life event, The one I remember this woman had drawn 19 flowers and you ask the question, well, what do, what happened when you were 19 years old? And it was a year she got married to an abusive husband. Uh, And we're all going, excuse us, what's going on here? It was fascinating to watch how these pictures
0: so accurately depicted what was deep in your unconscious brain. And even the work people do, you know, Ma- 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 women live longer than men with the same diseases. okay? And it's about I mean, one doctor wrote an article how it must be their hormones. I thought, what an idiot. You know what I mean? Uh, because the men who did well, I said, then they must be sleeping with hormones. You know, because it it isn't the hormones, it's the life. Women are into relationships. See, I've had a man in my office with his wife and three children sitting there. And he said, there's no point in living, I can't work anymore. I said, turn your head to the left. There are four good reasons. And the women, these are quotes, I don't make the stories up. I have nine kids, I can't die till they're all married and out of the house. 20 years later, the last kid left home. And what blew my mind was, I thought she must've been cured. The cancer came back 20 years later. Wow! How the hell do you account for that? But again, she turns off the will to live, they're all gone, I can go now. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow. You no,
1: know, it is amazing. And people just understand that again the body translates your translates this environment into physical symptoms. And so you either thrive or you barely survive, or you don't thrive at all. You actually pass away. So we talk about the patient's story making such a difference in treatment plans and outcomes. And I know you have endless number of stories about how, how that works, but at this, one of the biggest tragedies of modern medicine is that we're treating just the symptoms, but yeah. there's another factor that comes into play because actually the practice of medicine is tedious. We do surgery, physical therapy, injections, medications, and you see patient after patient after patient. So the burnout rate in medicine right now is about 60 to 70%. It's that's mind-boggling, that's right. tedious work. What makes medicine incredibly interesting is the patient because there's an infinite variety of people. So that's what makes it interesting. So what I have found interesting, and maybe you found out the same thing that burnout rate is high. There's this is repetition of doing the same thing over and over and over again is the inability or the lack of time to talk to patients that burns doctors out. And you probably see multiple physicians like I have is that when they actually sort of hit a phase where they say, screw it. I'm going to talk to my patients. They wake up, their career gets revived, they get revived. And as they get excited and optimistic about their patients, their patients in turn become excited and optimistic back. So that doctor-patient relationship is really critical in the healing process. And I'm just guessing one of the biggest reasons that you had so much success, quote, crazy Dr. Siegel, was that you sort of liked your patients.
0: Well, it was help. I need to know how to live between office visits. So I wasn't a failure if I didn't cure a disease. I would be failing them if I didn't teach them how to live. Okay. And the thing I noticed was if you help them live, they don't die when they're supposed to. It's, you know Because I have paintings when I'm looking up, famous paintings of doctors say, what are they doing? I mean, there are patients in the picture too. They're all sitting there like this thinking, their chin in their hand right nobody no doctor in the scene is touching the patient and yet one in doing i guess it was in JAMA, one doctor interpreted it because the picture was i put it in um he said oh oh the, the child's hand is reaching for the doctor the kid's hand is hanging off the side of a bed he wasn't reaching for the doctor but he's trying to interpret it you know that the." But the doctor's sitting there caring. If the kid's hand is there, why don't you pick it up? Right. And, you know, right. um, you when know, they have found that too, when you give uh, newborns who are dying to their parents, and I remember one mother put the kid against its bare breasts and the kid came back to life, literally. Um, that wakes everybody up. Right. So we need that kind of touch, relationships, all those things make a difference. And I created an operating room where there was that environment. I got to add two bits of humor because I'm playing music and talking to patients. That's the other thing. Patients hear you while they're, you know, anesthetized or in coma. So I always talk to people. I didn't care if, they, you know, they'd look at me and say, what are you talking? They're, you know, unconscious. They hear. And the anesthesiologist, who, again, thought I was nuts learned it was true because patients woke up and said things that they couldn't have heard except during surgery. Gotcha. You know, but some of the music was funny because if I played children's music, everybody regressed and became cheerful and happy because they did a lot of children's surgery. And it was amazing the effect it had. But then you have somebody who is, you know, under spinal anesthesia and you're working away and you hear, is everything all right down there? I said, what are you asking that for? Listen to the music. Amazing grace. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so every now and then the spiritual songs would come on and people would say, is everything all right? Oh, I know one with Frank Sinatra, all of me. Why not take all of me? <laughs> and, I, and they'd say, are you okay? What are you doing?
1: <laughs> oh, my God. No, that is funny. You
0: know, if A patient laughed. That's why the nurses would say to me, your patients are a problem. What is it? They refuse pain medication. I said, they don't hurt. How could that be? Let me, if you have time for a little story, because... Oh, yeah, no, we have a little time. My mother-in-law, in her 80s, from helping her paralyzed from a spinal cord injury husband developed a hernia and she was an opera singer. And all opera singers, believe me, are meticulous people. You gotta hit the right note in your whole, you know. Um, I didn't understand her until I began to listen to interviews of other opera singers and realized that's why she was like she was. Everything had to be in the right place and done the right way. So I thought, well, if I can embarrass her in the operating room, she will have no trouble recovering because it'll take her mind off the operation. So we're working under local anesthesia. And at the end, it finally came to me. I know she's in her eighties. Remember I said loud as hell. Now you remember no sex for six weeks after surgery. (laughs) Everybody looks at me, you know, but I knew why I was doing it. She leaves the operating room. I go put on my clothes in the locker room. I come out to the recovery room to check on her. I can't find her in the recovery room. I said to the nurse, where's my mother-in-law? They said she came out of the operating room, refused pain medication, asked for her clothing, and left. She went home. (laughs) And I said, Siegel, you did it, you know? No,
1: I mean, we used to have these incredible healings occur in, in, at the Omega Workshop in New York, which is a three-day workshop, but a big part of it was my wife doing rhythm and my daughter-in-law doing relaxation exercises, and it was a combination of social connection structure and play, and we couldn't figure out why it was so profound every time, and what we now know is that when you are, are at play, you have oxytocin and dopamine and serotonin and all these great chemicals. And what we now know is that oxytocin, the love drug or bonding drug, is strongly anti-inflammatory, which I didn't know that. Um, Of course, dopamine a reward chemical makes a big difference. So when you're in that mindset, again, this is not psychological. Your body's chemical state changes. It's the physiology that changes that allows you to
0: heal. That's why the petting of furry creatures raises the same hormones that go up in a woman after she gives birth to her child. You know, the bonding hormone. So you're benefited by petting this furry creature. Yeah, one woman, well, the family came in. She had cancer, her adult children, had a large number of them. They said to me, a mother has 12 cats. We don't visit her. The house stinks. And we'll get rid of them and clean the house. And then you can start treating her. I said, no. They said, what do you mean, no? I said, you get rid of the cats. Your mother's a dead woman. Right. Clean the house and tell her nobody wants twelve cats. Then she can't die. And many many years afterwards, they would always come into the office with the mother, big smiles. Thank you, Doctor Siegel. Thank you. Right. Because mom can't die. She's got all those cats.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you're talking about cancer, which obviously is a chronic, which obviously is a chronic disease that has an endpoint. You know, chronic pain is a chronic disease that often does not have an endpoint, but the bottom line is that it's chronic without hope. And once you give people hope, whether it's cancer or connecting to their own healing capacity, things change and people actually heal. So chronic pain, for instance, in our medical world is considered something to be managed, not cured. We see cures all the time. Cancer, same thing. I mean, cancer is some, something that you die from. It's something to be cured. And you see, have, you've seen many, many cures throughout your career. Again, it's that connecting to your own, your body's own capacity to heal.
0: Yeah, when you save your life, see, how, how many parents have said to their kids, these true stories, we want you to be a lawyer. We don't want a child who's a violinist. We want to be proud of saying our son, the lawyer. Right a lawyer, but when he develops cancer, he shut the office, picked up his violin and got a job in an orchestra and doesn't die. Wow. You know? Yeah. That's just, you know, these are classic stories. That I could see, and you can't deny them what these people are doing and how it's changing their life, their chemistry, the body message that they're getting all those things because there are times. Oh, like one young lady drew, I hate you. I said, if you hate your treatment, then stop. She said, no, I don't hate my treatment. Uh, You know, I hate my cancer and the doctor, you know, putting me through all these things. And we got her to look at changing from, you might say, hate to love, you know, loving yourself. And you see, again, psychiatrists understand this much better than oncologists because psychiatrists are often treating people who feel they're going to die and getting their life in order. When AIDS came out, one of them uh, came up with a list called immune-competent personality. Simple things like, I can say no to things I don't want to do, I can ask for help, I have humor in my life, you know, meaning and so forth. And he noticed that some people did very well, so he began studies. When I wrote articles, for psychiatric journals about the drawings and other things, they were sent back saying, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting because we know all this. So when oh, I publishing your article. Oh, interesting. When I sent it to medical journals, it came back saying, oh, it's very interesting, but it's not appropriate. So we're not gonna publish it. So I never got any article published but for opposite reasons, they right. it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. It's interesting, but it isn't appropriate. They're not. we got to take care of people where it is interesting and appropriate and work with them.
1: Right. Well, there's a research article. And of course, your attitude towards a patient makes a big difference. But because there's a research article out of Boston that points out that only 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain and less than 1% enjoy it. And it turned out for me, the last 10 years of my practice, watching people heal from chronic pain became not only enjoyable, but inspiring and incredibly energizing. Right. And then, of course, the energy goes back to the patient. So as you become more energized and excited about patient successes, then that sort of gets transmitted back to that next patient. So over the last five years, we've we've become much more consistent in not only teaching the healing principles,
0: but just connecting and just doing it. It's a a learned feeling. Very vital. Because I used to hug patients saying, I need to hug you. I heard two things. One was that it said, I need, not you need a hug. Mm -hmm. And I began to say to patients, you know, I want to apologize for asking for a hug. They said, we knew you needed it. So we had no trouble giving it to you. Interesting. Both were benefiting by embracing each other. But I thought that was really interesting that they were doing me a favor. The suicide rate in doctors is higher than the general population. I mean,
1: it's double in males and four times as high in females. It's horrible. Yeah.
0: Why are you doing this? You know, why are you killing yourself? Why not, see, why not kill what's killing you? Eliminate. That's why when I would say to people, what words would you use? Because I was thinking, You think of an anesthesiologist, you wanna be a doctor. What are you gonna do, put people to sleep? I mean, what kind of relationship is that, you know? But the good ones, even in the five or 10 minutes before, know how to do that. Because I've seen that with my family and others, where they come in smiling, have a relationship with you for a few minutes and then into the operating room. But then there are others who have no relationship with anybody you can't even talk to the person, but I learned they hear you, so you can talk. And um, nobody, I always say, nobody's against success. So I kept acting like this crazy doctor, and then everybody became like me because they realized, but what he's doing works. So even though it seems crazy, let's do it because it's helping patients.
1: Well, Bernie, well, thank you for this podcast. This again is wonderful. And Bernie's been on a long-term, lifelong mission of bringing healing back into medicine. Right. And you know, hundreds of years ago, many doctors instinctively knew this just by connecting, listening, and being with their patients with how you help people heal. Now, with technology, some planting time. Why is we have a bit of a problem here? So Bernie's been on a mission and successful in head, a, a successful, in my net about bringing healing back into medicine. And I do think. There's a huge move with, with technology taking over, but there's also another movement taking place where people are learning to connect with their patients and bring healing back into medicine. So your work Will carry, is carrying on, and I really am excited about your pioneer efforts back in the 80s, whereas this was not popular at all. And uh, your persistence and visions has been incredibly inspiring to me personally. So,
0: you know, authentic and scientific, faith, hope, and love. I mean, I've had- Asians go home, leave their troubles to God. That's a quote and come back free of cancer. Right. No, but the hard part is having that quiet mind and being able to do that. Um, And that's why the support groups and other things, maybe close with this one, you'll get a kick out of it. It was a 90 plus year old lady I met because she'd had cancer. And she had Yale students living in her house here in New Haven. Because she was like a grandmother to everybody. And I said to her, come and join our cancer group. You're a natural therapist. Everybody feels better with you. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to help people. Just come and sit there. So she came. One day, the room was filled with panic. Everybody, you know, I'm dying and everything's going wrong. I can't. And she's sitting there. I didn't know what to do for all these people. So I said to her, what are you afraid of? And she sat there looking at me for about five minutes. I said, what are you afraid of? Oh, I know what it is. What is it? Driving on the parkway at night. Everybody burst out laughing. And then you can't be afraid when you're laughing. You know, that I learned why I'm such a crazy character in many ways and places. But she had the answer. She'd lived through every damn thing, the death of loved ones, cancer, and what's left driving on the parkway at night? So everybody went home healed because of her simple statement. No, that's fantastic. No, this is
1: this is really good stuff. So Bernie, um, thank you again very much for being on the program, a and uh, we will stay in touch and talk soon. So thank you. You give me hope. <laughs> I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Bernie Siegel, for being on the show today and for sharing how he uses patient drawings to understand the patient's story and help promote healing. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com.